Welcome to HSBC Global Viewpoint, the podcast series that brings together business leaders and industry experts to explore the latest global insights, trends, and opportunities. Make sure you're subscribed to stay up to date with new episodes. Thanks for listening, and now on to today's show. Welcome to the Emerging Market Spotlight, a podcast series from HSBC. The emerging markets landscape is more complex than ever. At a time of divergent monetary policy, high commodity prices, supply chain disruptions, and geopolitical tensions, join us as we speak with world's leading institutional investors, experts, policymakers, and thought leaders. To explore the challenges and opportunities, make sure you subscribe to HSBC Global Viewpoint and stay up to date with new episodes. Thanks for listening, and now on to today's show. Well, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Well, first of all, my name is Murat Turgan. I'm the Global Head of Emerging Markets Research. I have to guests, to experts of their fields, very distinguished guests. So let me introduce them first. Um, we have Mr. John Buffis, um, who is uh, the Senior Agriculture Economist Development Economic Prospects Group at the World Bank, and Mr. Peter Nagel, who is also Senior Economist Prospects Group at the World Bank as well. So Peter and John, welcome, and thank you very much for joining us today. Well, obviously, global food prices have been very, very volatile. The food prices and commodity prices have come off from their peak levels, um, uh, like you know, compared to the earlier in the year, the outbreak of the Russia-Ukraine war, uh, but they're still elevated, and a lot of factors are feeding into it. Um, and given that they have a relatively high share in the EM consumption basket, it would be great to discuss what they all mean for EM inflation prospects or growth prospects. So we will take a deep dive on all these factors and obviously focus on the previous commodity price shocks as well. And uh, I have to say, Peter and John, they published a fantastic paper in April. You may have seen it. It's a World Bank paper. It's about the impact of the war in Ukrainian commodity markets. So super timely, and I'm sure they may want to refer to that paper as well. So without further ado, Peter, can we start with you sort of to paint the global backdrop for us, the general macro backdrop for commodities markets, you know, particularly for the energy commodities and oil markets. And then we go to we go to John to discuss the agricultural commodities. So Peter, over to you. Thank you very much. Thanks very much. And it's a pleasure to be here with you today. As you said, Mirat, there's many different factors affecting commodity markets at present, and we're seeing huge price volatility at the moment. And I think that reflects two competing narratives. On the one hand, you have widespread uh, concerns about the state of the global economy. We have a um, significant uh, and rapid tightening of monetary policy by central banks around the world. And that's leading to concerns about a global economic slowdown, if not an outright global recession. Now, set against that, you have um, widespread concerns on the supply side that we might have insufficient supplies. Um, and for energy, that reflects several years of low investment in fossil fuels. Uh, that really started in 2014 and has been exacerbated over the past couple of years. Um, we still have some supply side effects from uh, the disruption from the pandemic. And of course, these factors have been turbocharged by 
the impacts of the war in Ukraine. So on the demand side, if we take a look at oil, for example, I think the worries that we're seeing around demand are still just that, they're worries. If you look at the actual data, there has been some slowing in oil demand growth, but it's still positive. And the International Energy Agency is expecting growth of 2 million barrels a day this year and next year. So still pretty rapid growth, um, despite the economic backdrop. I think on the supply side, you have an array of factors that are potentially quite concerning. Whilst Russian exports have held up fairly well so far, they are expected to come off towards the end of this year as EU sanctions ramp up. Um, the EU will fully ban crude oil from December and oil products from February, and that's expected to take around one and a half to two million barrels a day off the market. On top of that, we know that OPEC plus are essentially at their maximum production capacity. Many of their members are producing well under target. Um, and on top of that, the group actually announced a production cut, uh, albeit a very modest one, but it's an indication that they're happy for oil prices to be quite a bit higher than they uh, perhaps had previously had as their, their unimplicit target. Um, OPEC, of course, also has very minimal spare capacity at the moment. Um, it's really only Saudi Arabia and perhaps UAE that have any spare capacity. Um, and that leaves the oil market vulnerable to, to shocks. Um, other important factors are the uh, drawdown of strategic petroleum reserves, um, particularly in the United States. Uh, this has been pretty uh, substantial, maybe around 1 million barrels a day of extra supply to the market. And that's expected to come to an end within the next month. Um, it could, of course, be extended, but, but there's no guarantee there. And finally, in terms of the US more broadly, uh, US shale is um, once again expected to come to the rescue. And there are these uh, very substantial predictions for production growth this year and next. But so far, it doesn't look like that's um, on track. Uh, if you look at the rig count, it's still quite subdued. Um, and Increasingly, these companies are focused more on returning cash to shareholders rather than increasing production. And even for the ones that do want to increase production, there are many supply side factors that are restricting them, such as a shortage of labor, a shortage of uh, equipment and parts. Um, and so it is going to be hard for the US to ramp up. So I think um, whilst we are seeing uh, much, you know, quite a sharp pullback in oil prices recently, over the one to two year horizon, we think that these supply factors will start to um, outweigh the worries about demand. Now, in contrast to previous energy crises, in fact, oil is almost the sideshow and it's natural gas and coal where all of the action is. What we've seen is Russia has uh, shut off flows to Europe. Europe has managed to rebuild its inventories, but only at great cost. It's basically sucked in every available cargo of liquefied natural gas around the world. And that's had really uh, severe ramifications on other countries. I mean, Pakistan, for example, hasn't been able to uh, bid for any LNG cargoes because Europe has just been drawing all of them in. So a lot will depend this year on how severe or mild the winter in Europe is. Um, I think if it's mild, Europe can probably squeak through. But if you do see a severe winter, it could require pretty drastic reductions in, in natural gas demand. And for policymakers, the, the key question there is going to be how much of that is borne by industry or how much is borne by households. 
Um, so with that uh, brief overview, um, probably a little pessimistic, but uh, I think that's the state of the world we're in. I'll pass over to John to talk a bit more about agriculture and also the broader impacts of the war in Ukraine. Okay, thanks, uh, Pete, and thank you very much, uh, Murat. I'm delighted to be part of this. Uh, let me begin by touching upon the issue of, uh, of price volatility for food commodities and the kinds of disruptions that we have seen in the, the global food commodity markets. In terms of uh, what is behind the price volatility that we have experienced the past couple of years, of course, the first uh, issue is the pandemic, which caused quite a few uh, supply disruptions around the world. Then uh, we had some uh, adverse weather patterns, uh, especially in Latin America, that affected the crops uh, such as soybeans and, and wheat. We also had some problems in Southeast Asia that affected crops such as uh, palm oil. And uh, more importantly, of course, we had the, the war in Ukraine, which disrupted the exports of uh, a number of commodities, especially wheat. And uh, Ukraine, along with Russia, are accounting for a good chunk of the wheat export market. So when the when Russia invaded Ukraine, exports from Ukraine came to practically to zero. And that sort of induced uh, fears of further supply disruptions. Uh, now, since then, uh, not since then, I mean, for the past uh, three months, I would say agricultural prices, especially wheat prices, have kind of uh, entered a downward path. They, they have declined a little. And that reflects the fact that uh, Russia agreed to let some of the export ports of Ukraine to start operating. So the, the world market has seen some, I would say, uh, some relative stability in terms of, in terms of price volatility. As we move ahead like the in the short term the medium term outlook a lot will depend of course what kind of actions various countries are going to take in terms of policy restrictions including of course whether uh, we're going to see exports coming out of ukraine and russia during the past couple of years we did see a number of policy restrictions especially export restrictions by uh, numerous countries another issue that i would like to highlight is the fact that uh, energy commodities and uh, food commodities are linked and are linked very closely both in the short term and the long run in the long term and uh, just as a side note i mean for the ones that have been in a farm uh, if you visit the farm what you see is trucks tractors uh, water pumps uh, fertilizer chemicals etc and everything all those items depend on energy uh, they run on energy uh, to summarize uh, we have seen uh, volatility, which on the one hand comes from the, the pandemic and the supply disruptions and uh, the export restrictions, but on the other side, it comes also through the strong links between uh, uh, energy and the non-energy commodity markets and in the food commodity markets. Now, comparing what is unfolding now, the current sort of price spike, and if we compare it with uh, the spikes that took place back in the 19, in 2007-8 as well as in 2011-12. I would say there's also the, there's of course the similarity uh, between the energy price spikes in the sense that both then and now we have increased in energy prices that of course affects, affects the cost of production. The second similarity is the policy restrictions which I mentioned which are in terms of numbers the same but they are less restrictive I would say now but there's a third i would say difference and that is what has uh, helped in a sense 
uh, food prices, uh, they have not skyrocketed as one would have expected. That's the fact that uh, food markets now are much better supplied than what they were back then, especially in 2007 and 2008. And that's why we have seen quite a bit of volatility in food markets, but not as much as one would have expected. Of course, if we have adverse weather events like next year or the year after, uh, stocks will, uh, inventors will deplete that will have uh, probably more severe problems. Uh, I will stop here. And as uh, Pete said, unfortunately, I don't have better news, but uh, anyway. Um, excellent. No, thank you very much, uh, Peter and John, for setting the stage very nicely for our uh, succeeding discussion. Perhaps um, I can pick your brains on uh, on the policy response. I mean, given, given the given the shock we've seen on commodities, and obviously there's a supply and demand element, um, commodities in general and agricultural commodities in, in particular, how do you see the policy response? Is it satisfactory? Is it counterproductive? So can, can we talk a little bit about the policy? Perhaps with the same division of labor, Peter, we start with you on you know broad commodities backdrop, uh, oil markets, et cetera, et cetera, and then go to John for agriculture commodities more specifically. Thank you. Yeah, so it's a great question. Um, I think what we've seen uh, in terms of the scale of the increases in energy prices they, they have necessitated a huge amount of policy response. Uh, the question is whether that's the right policy response. So what we've seen, uh, the, the most uh, policy responses have been tax cuts or price subsidies. Um, we've seen that in almost every country around the world. Uh, particularly in Europe, governments have been um, spending huge amounts of money on price caps um, for households, particularly for electricity and natural gas bills. Now, the scale of the increase in prices we've seen means that you do need substantial help. Um, households are really struggling. But to some extent, putting price caps in place doesn't do anything to address the underlying demand and supply imbalance. Um, and so what we've seen in, in Europe is that industry has been the one to suffer the brunt of adjusting on the demand side. Now, there have been some uh, policy measures on the supply side, and that I think is where you can really, that, that's the best way to address these issues. Fundamentally, we need more energy. Um, the EU has announced uh, a lot of plans to boost um, renewables, but of course that will take time. It, individual countries have implemented measures to increase their ability to import uh, liquefied natural gas, um, building new infrastructure and terminals, um, and you know that's Welcome to the extent it addresses energy supply issues, but of course it's uh, in marked contradiction to the EU's broader climate change objectives. Um, I think beyond this, what we would recommend is more targeted support to households rather than these widespread uh, rebates or, or price caps. Um, but of course that's in an ideal world and in practice it's, it's very hard to do and when households generally are suffering, price caps are a, a simple tool. So perhaps not the policy responses that we would like to see, but it's not an idealized world either. Um, John, I'll pass over to you on agriculture. Yeah, thanks, Pete. Uh, we did have uh, quite a, uh, a number of uh, policy responses, uh, export bans, etc., uh, in agriculture, uh, but not as bad as we had seen before. And uh, one of the reasons may be, and again, I have an interest to, to say that, is that this time, uh, the international organizations, as well as I would say the financial press, etc., they, they brought the issue into the forefront very early on. I would like to believe that that helped. 
Excellent. Thank you. Thank you, John. I think one of the questions is how will the energy price shock impact the transition to cleaner forms of energy? Uh, may, maybe to you, Peter. Yes, this is the, the hot topic at the moment. Um, I think on the one hand, this presents uh, a real opportunity to policymakers to accelerate the energy transition. Um, but uh, the way I view it is that the war in Ukraine is likely to delay the transition in the near term, but perhaps accelerate it in the longer term. And what I mean by that is that energy security has really come to the fore. The, the importance of energy security has risen uh, very high on policymakers' lists of priorities. Um, and in the short term, policymakers are willing to do anything to secure that, including returning to fossil fuels. Um, you see that in Europe, you see that in many other countries. The question is whether alongside that short-term response, they put in place measures to promote the necessary investment in renewable energy, to which also has very real energy security benefits. So I do think it will have very significant consequences for the energy transition. Uh, as I said, a delay perhaps in the near term, but potentially accelerating it in the longer term. Thank you, Peter. So maybe this one is for John. Global food prices don't appear to be in crisis with uh, Food and Agriculture Organization food prices just up 3.3% year to date. Why is food in CPI so much higher? This is a good question. <laughs> the, yes, if you look at the data and the, you pick the right uh, sort of months, if you start from, uh, let's say, May to, to August, you see a decline in food price going to make, uh, are we in a crisis? Let me make two points here. The first point is that uh, the FAO price index, as well as our the World Bank Commodity Price Index and other price indices, food price indexes, we monitor prices at uh, what we call uh, export level or FOB or CIF level, at the border pretty much. And uh, of course, between the border, the price in the border, and uh, our dinner plates and uh, breakfast plates, there's a huge difference. You have a transportation cost, storage cost, a lot of labor, other inputs, energy inputs, etc., etc. And that's why we see uh, the CPI being persistent, while we do not see a corresponding sort of uh, push from the primary commodity side. The second reason is that it takes time also from uh, the primary commodity uh, sort of shock to be transmitted around the world. And that's why we see some countries have higher inflation, experienced higher inflation three months ago. Other countries ex are experienced uh, higher inflation uh, uh, higher inflation now. Now, why we call it a crisis? I think that's a fair question, but I wouldn't call it a, a price crisis because the commentator raised a good point that the price have increased, but not as much. Perhaps one can go back to history and see even larger uh, price increases. Uh, but what we experience now is that disruption in supplies. Mm -hmm. For example, when following the invention, uh, invasion back in in, uh, in February, a lot of uh, grains, especially wheat, that was supposed to go to countries such as the Middle East and North Africa, wheat simply did not arrive there. And we did see within a matter of weeks some uh, food prices uh, skyrocketing there to increase by a factor of two by a factor of three. So uh, the conclusion here is that the crisis, so to speak, or the, the volatility has had a disproportional impact across the globe. And it hit hard countries that were dependent on imports from, uh, from Russia and Ukraine. So uh, yes, uh, it may not be a crisis for all, but it's certainly a crisis for some 
uh, for some countries. And of course, uh, the other issue is that uh, in a lot of uh, low-income countries, as we know, or in all, I would say, low-income countries, even small price increases play a huge role because in low-income countries, about uh, 50 to 60 percent of disposal income goes for, for food, something which is not the case for advanced economies, where only 10 to 15 percent goes for food. So even for small price increases for those countries, pay, pays a, they pay a huge price, consumers at least. Yeah, thank you, John. No, that's great. And but perhaps I may go back to an earlier question, which essentially was saying, you know, why could this shock be longer lasting? I mean, these interlinkages between you know, energy commodities and agriculture commodities through three various channels. But I know you also discuss in the paper, maybe Peter Moore for you, that there aren't enough substitutes when it comes to energy commodities. Can you open that, uh, open that up uh, for us, please? Thank you. Thank you, yes. And um, so in the paper, what we do is look back at previous energy crises, particularly the 1970s oil price shocks. And we looked at how um, those evolved and how they were addressed. And what we found was that, particularly in the oil price shocks of the 1970s, you had this widespread substitution away from crude oil um, and towards coal and natural gas. So back then, crude oil was used in electricity generation um, and countries shifted fairly rapidly um, towards coal um, and also nuclear power. Um, on top of that, you had a lot of increases in energy efficiency and appliances. Um, you had uh, a lot of government policies put in place to um, have things like fuel efficiency standards in the US. Uh, there was a really dramatic improvement in the um, efficiency of US cars. Now, if you look, compare that with today, as I said at the start, it's uh, almost oil prices, which are the cheapest form of fuel at the moment, and the uh, highest increases have been for natural gas and coal. So you have much less scope for substitution to a cheaper fuel. Um, I mean, that's one reason perhaps why, why we might expect to see uh, more rapid deployment of renewables if we think that those are increasingly the cheapest option. Um, so potentially a, a reason for optimism amongst our other gloomy comments. Um, we are seeing some uh, government policies on the efficiency side, um, but really we think these are not perhaps sufficient. There is more that governments could do in that regard. Um, and again, as I said at the start, the price signal is one of the best ways to achieve that. You know, the market has a way of, of balancing demand and supply. But if you mute that price signal by putting in place price caps, then you're kind of shutting off that natural correction. And I think, you know, beyond this, you also have uh, the fact that energy costs as a share of GDP have fallen quite substantially, particularly in advanced economies. And so perhaps consumers might be a little less sensitive to oil prices than they were back in the 1970s. Excellent. Thank you, Peter. Now, I totally take your point about the price signals when you bring caps or perhaps even sort of these export bans or restrictions, as you talked about, which is suppressing the price signal. Um, Okay, let's move on. Uh, it's an interesting question for you, John, I guess. Are biofuels and ethanol contributing significantly to increasing grain prices? Great. Uh, thanks, Martin. Uh, thanks, uh, uh, the commentator. This is a, a great question that I was going to answer it anyway. <laughs> That's I found it very, very interesting and very important. Uh, certainly, they do contribute. Uh, nobody, we cannot deny that. And uh, the numbers are uh, supporting, so to speak, this. 
according to our calculations, about uh, three to four percent of uh, global Arab land is allocated to the production of biofuels. And that's a, quite a bit of a big chunk of land, land that's uh, allocated to biofuels. Now, one other number that I would like to highlight here and uh, make the contrast uh, in biofuels is, as I said, on the one hand, three to four percent of land is allocated for the production of biofuels. But when we see how much biofuels account for in terms of energy, they account for about 1.8% for total uh, oil consumption, uh, but they only account for 06 to 0.7% for total energy consumption, which is, of course, another source of consumption of energy, but very, very little. So to summarize, you have a 3 3 to 4% uh, diversion of land to only contribute 0.6 to 0.7% on uh, energy supplies. So I would say that the math is against biofuels. We do a lot of negative sort of damage, if I could uh, put it plainly, on, on the food side, and we only get a little benefit on the, uh, on the energy side. So this is one aspect of biofuels. And the other aspect is that uh, quite a bit of research has come out recently and earlier, I would say, that uh, they are questioning whether there are uh, environmental benefits in the first place. So we have this diversion, but it does not guarantee that we do have environmental benefits. So I think it's a legitimate question to ask, do biofuels uh, help? And I don't know. I don't think the answer is uh, positive here. Excellent. Thank you, John. Um, so maybe more sort of on a big picture philosophical question uh, long term. I, I know we did touch upon this here and there, like with exports ban and stuff. Um, but um, I think it's a very relevant question, especially in the current global backdrop. What impact could deglobalization and rising protectionism have on food inflation and markets? I think this question is more broad based, not only agriculture, food commodities, but also for you know global commodities, energy commodities and everywhere. So maybe, Peter, we can start with you. Yes, no, it's, it's a really important point. Um, I think, particularly in the case of energy, as I said, energy security is becoming very important. Um, and that's leading countries to really shift what <coughs> shift patterns of trade. And these, by their nature, are inefficient. In an ideal world, commodities will flow to their, uh, you know, nearest people or places with the shortest transport cost. And instead, what we're seeing is, if we take the example of Europe, shipping natural gas by pipeline from Russia to Europe is a very cost-effective way of uh, transporting natural gas. Now, instead, Europe is importing liquefied natural gas from all over the world, from, from very far off places. Um, and this pushes up the, the cost of transporting it, uh, both in terms of the dollar cost, but also the energy cost. Um, and the same is true for coal. Uh, there was this story uh, doing the rounds the other day about um, Tanzania, which typically only exports coal to its most immediate neighbors and is now seeing uh, demand from, from Europe, even though the cost of shipping coal from Tanzania, Tanzania to Europe is uh, extremely high um, and would be uneconomic at normal levels of coal prices. Um, so I think the inefficiency argument is definitely there um, and, and a concern, and to the extent that this makes markets um, more costly, it will also serve to push up prices um, ultimately for the consumer as well. Perfect. So, Jonathan, can you touch on the regional differences in rising food prices? Which regions 
are most impacted by this and obviously which the least? Yes, uh, first uh, let me say that uh, when you look at the sort of a heat map on the food price increase, you see uh, if you color red for food prices which experience inflation, let's say above 5%, you, you just see the world, map, uh, the world map becoming red. So it's something that has, is taking place across the world affects both developing and developed countries so nobody has escaped so to speak that but when you zoom in into food commodities uh, i would say that uh, probably sub-saharan africa and uh, what we call the mena region the north africa and the middle east region they have been affected the most and the Middle East and North Africa region is, uh, as I elaborated earlier in the discussion, is because they have direct links with the imports from uh, Russia and the Ukraine, simply because of geography, their proximity, so to speak. Uh, so those are the regions I would say they have been affected the most. Now, the regions that have been affected the least is East Asia, the Pacific region, uh, which includes uh, China, uh, Thailand, uh, Indonesia, and uh, those countries. And uh, the reason that, uh, in our opinion, this region has been affected the least is because from a cultural perspective, they are uh, a rice-consuming nation, they are rice-consuming nations. And uh, in contrast to Middle East and North Africa, which are cons uh, wheat-consuming nations. So the price of rice did not increase much has been quite stable throughout the past uh, three to four years. And that's probably the reason why we do not see much food price inflation in the uh, East Asia region, while we, see, we saw the most in uh, uh, North Africa and the Middle East. So we do see quite a bit of variation, but again, as I said earlier, if you look at the map, uh, nobody has escaped. Excellent, excellent. Thank you so much, John, Peter. So this was an amazing discussion. Very insightful. Uh, really, really appreciate your participation. And, and once again, um, I would highly recommend this amazing paper, World Bank paper from April, uh, where John and Peter co-authored on the impact of the war in Ukraine on commodity markets. Really very enlightening. Uh, Peter and John, thank you very much again. Have a great rest of the day. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Emerging Markets Spotlight. We hope you enjoy the discussion. HSBC is uniquely positioned to connect investors and corporates internationally. To learn more about anything you heard today, visit gbm.hsbc.com or contact your HSBC representative. Make sure you subscribe to HSBC Global Viewpoint and stay up to date with new episodes. Thank you for joining us at HSBC Global Viewpoint. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. Make sure you're subscribed to stay up to date with new episodes.